There's seven case updates that we're gonna go through today. I'm gonna to talk a little bit of oddities in each case. And there's one particular case that I'd really like to bring awareness to, and it's in my neck of the woods, Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and we need to talk about it. So now, let's get into it. The first case is Rachel Morin case. You may have heard this case. Rachel was actually murdered on August 5th, so just over a month ago. She's a mom of five from Maryland and she went out for a night of running or walking on the trail and she never got out. She was found the next morning deceased and she was found in a tunnel. Now there's a suspect that they're currently looking for and it's interesting because he's tied to a case way back out west in Los Angeles, California and they haven't been able to find this guy. Now there was a profiler named Pat Brown and he talked about this. He said that this guy has psychopathic tendencies. He said he's narcissistic, he lacks empathy, he's manipulative and is likely a pathological liar. They also talked about how he's extremely violent. Obviously Rachel died of a pretty brutal death from what we are hearing in uh, in the news. But He's saying that, um, the profiler is saying that this guy must know somebody, being that it's in a small town where this happened to Rachel, and that he traveled from California and he's possibly staying with somebody, and says that he may live or work near the trail where Rachel was murdered. Now, this suspect is said to be between 5 foot 9, 160 pounds, and of Hispanic descent. And they said that this suspect would obviously not be accountable for either at work or home sometime between 6 p.m. and dusk on Saturday, August 5th. Now, there has been ring camera footage, although it's blurry, it's tough. You can see he's kind of wearing, well, he is wearing a necklace, but it is really tough to see and he doesn't show his face. And that was from the California case. Now it said that detectives are traveling to Chicago or they traveled to Chicago to follow up on a tip, although that's been hush hush. Dog the Bounty Hunter is also involved and Cece Moore, who's a genetic genealogist, weighs in on the genetic DNA evidence that they have from this suspect. But she's saying that there's some hurdles because if he is of Hispanic descent, she's saying that it's gonna be much more likely a difficult case. Now what happens is when you get the DNA, you get it from the guy and you're putting it into a database, what you're trying to do is basically see, well, what you will be doing is getting matches from cousins, which most likely is distant cousins, unless you hit the jackpot and then it's gonna be really easy to do. But if you get these distant cousins, then you're trying to go up the family tree, you're trying to go into the grandfather, the great-grandfather or great-grandmother, all the way up, and then trying to connect where this distant cousin um, intersects. So what ancestor do you share? So Cece is saying if he is in fact Hispanic, they're gonna, have a challenge. They said that this is, you know, more harder to solve because there's not so many in the database. She does say the one exception is Mexican-American families whose presence in the U.S. goes back to the 1800s. It says, in addition, if the suspect is a recent immigrant, it's even less likely that they'll get a close match. If the suspect is an undocumented immigrant, the trail can go cold quickly. Now, another thing that's an obstacle is if he is Hispanic and they go looking in the trees and they're trying to connect the dots and figure out who's who at the zoo, 
the surname she said is going to be a problem because many share the same surname not necessarily that they're related so there's an obstacle right there and she says uh, she cited a European study and said that in Spain 20% of people in the country have one of the 10 most common names or surnames and now the FBI is involved in this a reward up to $10,000 is being offered to you know give up basically Rachel's murder. One that one of the things that I was thinking about too is interesting because they're trying to find this guy. They haven't been able to find him. Uh, they have his DNA. It's not hitting. Well, it's hitting so that he has DNA. Um, they they're able to get that, but they're not able to find out who the heck this guy is, which is interesting. As they're working on these trees, they're going to find out more and more. But one of the things that came to mind was wonder if he's a twin because there's Maryland and then there's also uh, California which is you know across the country however people travel I mean this was happening the last case was in April people travel it's a couple months apart but I'm curious if that's a little wrench in the plans um, because if he's a twin it's going to be a lot harder now from what I read they can actually um, take that because tw an identical twin will have the same DNA right you'll, you'll look like the same person which would suck for the other twin if it's if that's the case but there I was reading that they can actually start to decipher if it is a twin and they can uh, do more and more research I guess into it and figure out if if it is a different uh, twin so tips can be emailed or called and I'll put that in the description box below second case is Rex Hewerman and the Gilgo 4 this is interesting there's a couple new updates on this the authorities cannot directly connect Rex with a missing South Carolina woman her name's Julia Ann Bean however the FBI has now joined that investigation and that's ongoing uh, no body has been found yet one other thing is um, there's a 1989 disappearance and murder of a Carmen Vargas and that's also being investigated as to maybe it being one of Rex's victims or one of his first ones so the DA's office in Nassau County has confirmed her case is being re-examined by detectives they're looking into Rex as being a potential suspect and her remains were identified in 1992 but there's similarities to her case and to um, Rex's MO if he is you know uh, guilty of it so he's allegedly an alleged murder the similarities are she disappeared after getting into a dark truck which Rex owned a dark truck her remains were found in a wooded area approximately 30 feet from the west side of the Meadowbrook State Parkway in Freeport New York and we know that the Gilgo victims were found on Gilgo Beach she was in her 20s petite frame 5'1 and 105 pounds which is very similar also to his victims they said that there she was found with her legs bound by a cord and towel over her face and rope tied around her neck and it's not mentioned in the news report it's saying in this but her wrists were also found bound similarly to these victims her skull was also missing teeth and her body was also found only a few minute drive from Rex's home so I'm makes sense while they're looking into it and it sounds like there's a lot of things so it'd be interesting to see how and what happens with that case um, also there's numerous police departments across the United States that are combing through all these cold cases and missing persons to establish a link to Rex we know Rex owned some timeshares as well and he traveled so who knows I mean this kind of guy doesn't just stop right now there's another thing that there's a disgraced 
ex-police chief named James Burke. John Ray, who's one of the victim's lawyers, says that Rex and this disgraced police chief may have met on a gay cruising scene. So there's some bunch of stuff on this police chief that he was recently arrested for exposing himself. He was initially charged with soliciting a male prostitute. I mean, it goes on. And then on to Rex's wife. She actually previously spoke with Melissa Moore, who we know as the daughter of the happy face killer. And they were talking about remembering or replaying memories that had to do with Rex. And according to Melissa Moore, she said it appeared as though that the wife of Rex was dissecting her memories in search of red flags that she missed. And it says, and she says, that's just my observation. But when we were talking about our stories and our experiences, we were dis dissecting our stories like, what did we miss? Why did we not see this, etc. And um, so there's been. In my last video, I talked about that as well with Melissa Moore. A lot of people were saying, you know, she shouldn't have a GoFundMe because that was happening. And um, there was a lot of back and forth. And um, Asa, or I believe it, you pronounce it as Asa, the wife of Rex, she was saying um, that her house was destroyed by the search warrant. Now, a lawsuit has also been filed by the New York State Department of Labor because Rex underpaid his executive assistant, it was said from 2017 to 2018. And this lawsuit was settled for 84,945 bucks, but after paying an initial 16,000 and some change, Rex never paid the rest of the money. And so the labor department is seeking to recover an unpaid amount. So we'll see what happens in this case because there may be some you know, more and more victims and I'm pretty sure, I mean, you let me know what you think, but it sounds like there's going to be more and more. This guy doesn't just one and done, in my opinion. Now let's go to the next case. This happened in my neck of the woods in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And this one is absolutely heartbreaking. It just happened a few days ago. An 18-year-old boy, his name is Danilo Glenn, or Danny, as I've seen people call him. He's 18 years old. He decided to go to a basketball court, played with a couple buddies the other day. And in fact, I think it was four days ago. And what happened was he was playing basketball and the account says that two unknown guys who were in that 16 to 18 year old range, and I will talk about uh, what they look like in a minute, but they goaded him and his friends, Danny and his friends, to get into an altercation. And these guys pepper sprayed him and they also uh, stabbed him. And unfortunately um, and tragically, Danny died. And so I got, I got chills. It, it's really, really sad. Uh, it says that there were people who were there who witnessed this, obviously also the friends that were playing basketball, and that they're very, very traumatized by this, and rightly so. This young man just finished high school a couple months ago. He was set to go to school to learn welding, and he loved basketball and just wanted to go play basketball. It said that Danny was very excited about his future. He was a great person with great values and will be missed by many of his peers. He's a true friend who always held you accountable but wanted the best for everyone around him. And this is crazy because the police haven't even caught him yet, these two 
guys yet. It says the first suspect is thought to be between 16 and 18 years old. He was last seen wearing a navy blue zip-up hoodie with a thin black stripe across the chest, black pants and black shoes. And I'm sorry, it says the chest back, so the stripe and black shoes. His hood was also up at the time of the incident. And the second suspect is also between 16 and 18, and police say that he's around five foot eight with a slim build, dark brown or black hair and brown eyes. And he was last seen wearing a light gray zip up hoodie with a thin black line across the chest of the back and black jeans, black shoes, and a rectangular Gucci fanny pack across his chest. So it sounds like the same type of zip-up hoodie. One was wearing a navy blue, the other one was wearing a light gray one. And um, this will be interesting with the Gucci fanny pack because, I mean, how many kids wear that? Maybe there's quite a few, but maybe not. Maybe he can get caught sooner than later or at least be questioned. Anyone with information can call 403-266-1234 or anonymously through Crime Stoppers. This is actually Calgary's 13th homicide of 2023. They're doing a vigil, I believe, at the time of this recording. It's going to be in a couple hours from now. Um, there's a GoFundMe. I'm going to link that there. If you feel so inclined to donate, please um, donate there. It's to help the family. And just know that the family had terrible news finding out that uh, Danny is gone. And they just wanted to play basketball. I just, It's just getting brutal. And obviously these guys are up to no good having bear spray and then stabbing the kid. And now I actually saw on the news, they were releasing balloons in the air for Danny. And one of the boys there was, he was crying and it was heartbreaking. I'll leave a clip right here. Come on, Daddy, give me a sign that you're up there, bro. I love you, man. We'll never get to see the beautiful smile again, bro, but always live on in my head. Anything would help if you'd like to donate. I appreciate it. Now let's go to Corey Richens' case. I've done a few videos on her. She was the woman who allegedly poisoned her husband while he was in bed and she gave him a poison cocktail and then wrote a children's book about it. And she had numerous money problems. She had a mansion she bought. Um, she had insurance on put on her husband and also her children, multiple it was said. In the last hearing that she was at, she was acting like Lori Daybell, in my opinion, and many other people's opinion. She was laughing, there was all kinds of stuff going on, and even some stuff from her lawyer. But in this one, she was actually in a recent court hearing and she was, I guess she had a very different demeanor. She wasn't as perky. She was more uh, defeated, I would say, in her demeanor. There was a time where she was rolling her eyes and looking up, but pretty much she had a very different demeanor, demeanor than before. Her defense attorney, her name's Sky Lazara, and she said that she needed more time to go through the documents because there's so much to prepare for this preliminary hearing. In fact, she didn't want the preliminary hearing set. She wanted to go through uh, like a status hearing and then set the preliminary. She did have a snarky remark about the uh, prosecution having 18 months to look at everything, and she said she has a lot. It's you know it's voluminous, like we usually hear from from a lot of these court cases. But Corey just looked a lot more timid and, you know, the smirks and laughs are gone. 
Now her multi-million dollar mansion, which I just mentioned, that's up for sale and is listed for $3.5 million. And if it sells, the funds from this house can be put in a trust for her children. And it um, had a rule called the Slayer Rule that doesn't allow her, if uh, she is responsible for her husband's death, that um, she can't benefit from him. So it says there's a possibility that Corey could have access to the funds and could use it for legal fees, investigations, but it's likely that if the property sells, there will be a battle between Corey and Eric's family for the proceeds. And that's what's going on too. Um, Corey's, I'm sorry, Eric's family um, has seen the dark side of Corey, let's just say, and there's been a feud and a lot of things happen. It was reported that there was a party within the 24 hours that her husband died, a lot like Lori Daybell as well. So we're gonna keep an eye on this case. I mean, let's see what ends up happening. It was scary though, from what I saw uh, with the book and Corey's actions, you gotta wonder if her kids weren't next, especially with those multiple insurance policies on her kids and Eric's sister actually was talking about these multiple insurance policies in court. So we'll keep an eye on that. Now let's get to Brian Koberger, because there's some weird stuff in here too. Ann Taylor is the representation for Brian and she's accusing the FBI in harassing genetic genealogy witness Gabriela Vargas that testified in this recent hearing that they had. So there's some stuff going around that. The defense wants cameras banned. We heard about that in previous times. And except for there's some weird things in here that they want the cameras banned because they don't want um, the cameras focusing on Brian Koberger's fly, which is interesting. It says, a defendant on trial for a specific crime is entitled to his day in court, not a stadium or a city or nationwide arena. Similarly, Mr. Koberger is entitled to defend himself against capital criminal charges without cameras focused on his fly. Now, I did see a picture of that. I don't know what was going on. I didn't see the whole um, case or the whole hearing. If you did, let me know below. I'll take a look at that. But. I don't know if this is just ridiculous, if there was actually something there, but you know, when you're defending yourself or def or the defense, they're gonna have to pull out a lot of things and whatever they can to stop these cameras. But a motions hearing regarding this camera ban has been pushed and it's gonna be September 13th, which is next week at 1.30 p.m. And there's also a hearing regarding uh, a dismissal of the grand jury indictment that was put forth a while ago, and that's now pushed to September 22nd. Let's just quickly talk about Gabby Petito in her case. August 27th marked two years for her um, since she disappeared and she was killed. But remember the former attorney that the Laundries had, Steve Bertolino, and was a family friend for years and years, knew Brian Laundry as well. Well, apparently he offered a confidential settlement to Gabby's family in the civil suit against him. And the Laundries, though, are not mentioned in the settlement, it said, and not believed they are part of the settlement offer. But this is interesting that Bertolino offered a confidential settlement. We'll see how that goes. Let's get to Lori Vallow-Daybell and not too much because we need to not talk about Lori for a while. But Lori's lawyer, Jim Archibald, maybe we will be seeing or hearing a lot from that. We still have to go to, uh, what's his name? <laughs> we still have to go and watch what's going on in Arizona 
with uh, Lori Daybell's going because she is getting in trouble with Charles Vallow's death and um, also the attempt made on Brandon Boudreaux, who is Lori's brother-in-law or ex-brother-in-law. So anyways, Jim Archibald filed an appeal and he has 16 issues about the trial that just took place for Lori and it goes on and on saying, did the court err? And there's a list of 16 things. It's basically talking about Lori's uh, mental capacity. Was she, did they err in that she was competent to stand trial? Did they err on the defense experts requesting to send the defendant back to the mental hospital rather than proceed to trial? Um, uh, sorry, where there was a denial of that. Also, was the defendant's constitutional statutory right to a speedy trial violated? We heard the judge talk about that over and over, that he's well aware about the uh, the statutes and for speedy trial, blah, 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 with Lori. Um, it keeps going in here, basically talking about, did the court err in denying defense challenges for cause of trial jurors due to the bias or hardship during jury selection? Did the government commit fundamental reversible error in its opening statements? It keeps going. There's a lot of things in here. Basically, they're pulling out whatever they can. Did the court err in allowing the government to amend the grand jury indictment two years after the indictment was filed without sending the case back to the grand jury? Did the court err in allowing the jury to hear statements of co-conspirators, but then rule in jury instructions that the government need not prove those persons were part of the conspiracy? On and on, it keeps going. Basically, they're pulling out a bunch of a bunch of stuff. We're going to hear more about it, obviously, because they're bringing this up. But it's saying, should a new sentencing hearing be held due to the sentencing court not reviewing all mitigation evidence submitted by the defense? Did the sentencing court abuse its discretion by ordering the defendant to serve three consecutive fixed life sentences without parole? And then they were. she was also ordered to pay costs and they're they're uh, re, what's the word rebutting that I guess for lack of a better term so we'll keep you notified on that and I think it's going to still be a couple months before Charles's case goes and I'll put that below so you can catch up on Charles's file and on the case and what happened there if you haven't already or maybe you're going to wait to see that but I'll have that below now one more is Leticia Stoke now she was apparently transferred to a different prison and in Kansas. And that was confirmed on August 21st, but it's unclear why she was transferred and when exactly did this transfer take place. But according to her lawyer, Josh Tolini, he said he's not sure why she was transferred, but if he had to guess, it could be due to safety reason reasons following the high profile murder trial. It also said there's a spokesperson for the Colorado Department of Corrections said CDOC re regularly utilizes interstate transfers to manage our population and to best protect the safety and securities of our facilities. So it'll be interesting to find out what the heck happened to, to her and why, like why did she get transferred? Maybe she was pulling the usual Letitia and her dumb behavior and uh, or maybe she was being threatened whatever she's been in Kansas before because when she was being transferred way way back when she was arrested she was being transferred back to Colorado and they had to stop in Kansas because she actually got out of her cuffs and she was basically assaulting one of the officers so or maybe it was two one of them got beamed in the head with a with a 
drink as well. I mean, it's Letitia. But I also got an email um, regarding some recorded phone calls that took place after she was sentenced. So I haven't heard the phone calls, but I'm going to take a look at that and then just see if there's anything there. And if there's something there, then great. And if not, then great, because then we can put Letitia to rest and see you later. Have fun with your peanut butter. I'll have the link to all the cases below. You can check them out here or take a look here for the next video. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you in the next video. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.